This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Hey, good evening, everybody, and uh, welcome to our class today, which is on one of the famous women prophets. And this prophet test, we had seven female prophets in our history. Sarah, Abraham's wife, Sarah, Miriam, Moshe and Aaron's sister, Devorah, we talked about Devorah, one of the famous judges of Israel, and Hannah, which I'm going to talk about today, as well as Abigail, Hulda, and Esther. Well, today we're going to talk about Hannah, and Hannah, we all know, is a famous mother of the prophet Samuel, Shmuel Hanavi, the famous prophet of Israel, who anointed two kings, our first two kings. He was the one who anointed King Saul, Shaul HaMelech, and he also anointed King David, David HaMelech. So the mother of Shmuel was Hannah. Hannah epitomizes the power of tefillah, the power of prayer. That's exactly what we're going to talk about today. Who was Hannah? What kind of woman was she? And how does she epitomize the power of prayer? Amazing, amazing woman. And it's interesting, Hannah comes from the root of the word chen. We know it's interesting, chen means grace. I have to talk a bit more about that. I have a whole class on grace. How do we, a person, earn God's grace? And the secret is in Parshat Noah. It's interesting, Noah, spelled backwards, is chen, which means grace. Interesting, Noah means comfort, uh, pleasantness, because it says when he was born, he invented the plow, apparently. And people were comforted from the curse of the earth, that now they could plow the earth. So interesting. But it says he found grace in the eyes of God. The Pasha Breshit ends off with this line. Noach found grace in the eyes of God. And it's a really powerful thing to find grace in the eyes of God. He was one of the few people, eight people who were saved from the flood. Noach, his, his wife his three sons and their three wives. So altogether, eight people were saved from the flood because Noah found grace in the eyes of God. And Hana is the female form of the word chen, which is grace. So she was grace personified, Hana. She also found favor in the eyes of God and hence her prayers were answered after many years of crying and praying. Her, her prayers for a child were answered. Now what's, there's an interesting theme going through the whole Tanakh and that is the theme of righteous people who are denied to have children. Righteous people who have a hard time having children. And after many years of prayer, it's interesting, some of the great rabbis of our generation, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, never had any children. Um, we know that uh, Rav, uh, who was, whose father was uh, killed in the Holocaust from, by the Nazis, one of the famous rabbis of Israel, his son, Rav Simcha Wasserman who was uh, Rabbi Hanan Wasserman's son, very famous. He was a rabbi in LA for many years, no children. Many, many great rabbis who are well-known. And there's one, there's Rosh Hashima down the road. I don't want to say his name. It's, again, there's an older man and his wife already passed away and no children. So it's, uh, it's, it still goes on till today. These Sadiqim who had a hard time having children for many, many years. The classic case we in our history is Abraham and Sarah, who couldn't have children till Abraham was many years old and Sarah was uh, 90 years old. So Sarah was 90 years old. Abraham couldn't have a child. He had a child before Sarah because he had a child from Hagar, his maid. But it's interesting that they never had children for many, many years. Rivka and Yitzhak were barren for 20 years. 20 years they couldn't have children. And that's one of the ways we learn how to pray. He was praying for her, as she says. She was praying for him, and they were answered. Apparently, you pray for other people, you get answered first. And, and thirdly, we have uh, Rachel. Rachel was not, she was barren for 14 years. 14 years, she never had a child. So we find this theme going right through our Tanakh. And Hannah also says she couldn't have children. Hannah could not have children. So we find this concept of uh, People have a hard time having children. The Sadiqim who have a hard time having children. Today, thank God, we have all the treatments, fertility treatments. But the Gemara says three keys are in the hands of God alone. Three keys are in the hands of God alone. One of them is the key for rain. 
We had our first rain last week, and there's a shortage of a little bit of rain compared to last year. We're already short of rain. So it's going to rain next week as well. We need some heavy rain in Israel without any flooding. And we'll get to that. So the key of rain is in God's hands. The key of birth is also in God's hands. So with all our modern technology, obviously, we're much better off today than before. But still, you see, some people cannot have children. With all the modern technology, it's a hard time having a kid. And uh, number three is the key of Tehiyat Hametim, revival of the dead, where the dead will come back again. That is the key in the hands of God. God alone has that power to bring the dead people to rise. So Bezrah will see that as well. So Hannah, very special woman. She had this problem of childbirth. And what's, what's interesting is that she was married to, again, another big prophet as well. She was married to a prophet, one of the 48 male prophets of Israel. And his name was Elkanah. And that's how, it's interesting, that's how the book of Samuel starts. There's no book of Hannah. Where do we find Hannah? Well, she's the mother of the prophet Samuel. So if you open the book of Shemuel Aleph or Samuel 1, the first verses deal with his, his parents, Shemuel's parents. So the history of their famous illustrious son, Shemuel, starts off with the history of his great parents. Interesting. To have a great child, you have to have great parents. So the great parents exceptionally great parents. We have to talk about their greatness. So Elkanah and Hannah were the parents of Shmuel. And what's interesting is they were both prophets. She was a prophet and he was a prophet. Elkanah is one of the 48 prophets of Israel. And she was also a prophetess. So interesting, great, illustrious parents. And their son Shmuel is also a prophet. So here we have three prophets, a family of prophets, family of prophets, parents of prophets, and the son is prophet. And we have to see what's so special about them. So the Torah tells us in the book of Shmuel, book of Samuel, He was a man who could see from far away. So obviously that means a prophet. He could see from high places far away. Mehar Ephraim is from the mountain of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah. Ben Yerucham, the son of Yerucham, Ben Elihu, Ben Tohu, Ben Suf, Ephrati. He was a very important person. Ephrati means literally from Ephrat, which is Beit Lechem, but it's also used as a term of acknowledgement of greatness. So whoever's called an Ephrati was a very important person. We're going to talk a bit more about that. We'll talk about the story of Ruth, because her father-in-law was also called an Ephrati, uh, was also called an important person. So Ephrati is not just uh, from Ephrat, which is Beit Lechem, but also a great person in his own right. So Elkanah is called a very important person. Elkanah was a direct descendant of Korach. That comes with a bit of a shock. He was a direct descendant of Korach. Korach was the one who did not accept the prophecy of Moshe. Did not accept the prophecy of Moshe. It's interesting, you know, uh, just this year in Parsha Korach, there was an incident in Yerushalayim. And the incident in Yerushalayim was the parking lot of Shari Tzedek opened up, the ground opened up and swallowed a couple of cars. So essentially, Parshat Korach, we talk about how the ground opened up in the Parshat Korach and swallowed Korach and his family. Well, here on Parshat Korach, the ground opened up in Yerushalayim. Apparently, they're building a tunnel under the parking lot of uh, Shari Tzedek Hospital and the ground opened up, literally opened up, the hole opened up, big hole, swallowed three cars. Amazing. Only in Yerushalayim, you get that connection to the Parashat. Wow. So connected to the parasha, interesting. Anyway, so here's the sentence of Korach, and that is Elkanah, who is a Levi, a Levite. The sentence of Korach, amazing. It says the children, the sons of Korach, did teshuva. They sang praise of God. You'll find if you open the book of Tehilim, you'll find Mizmor Levnei Korach, or Levnei Korach Mizmor. There's different psalms in the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is not just written by David Amelech. It was a compendium of psalms written by many people. I think there's 10 authors of uh, Tehillim. Most of them were written by King David. In the book of Psalms, most of them were written by King David, but there were some Psalms written by others. And one of them was the sons of Korach. So, so Psalms of Korach, Korach's sons did teshuva, and their progeny was Elkanah, whose son Samuel Shmuel also was a prophet and descendant of Korach. Interesting. So Korach 
the commentaries on the, on the Torah tell us one of the reasons that Korah felt he was as great as Moses because he saw he, had, he was going to have one of these great descendants called Shmuel Hanavi. And he said, if my descendant is great, I must be great as well. That was his big mistake. Just because your descendant is great doesn't mean that you yourself are great. And many people who are not so great had great descendants. And that was one of them was Shmuel, direct descendant of Korah of all people. Okay, so we are moving on. Elkanah. Ben Yerucham, Ben Elihu, Ben Tohu, Ben Suf, Efrati, Velo, Shtein Hashem. He had two wives. Shtein Achat, Shem Achat Chana, Veshem Hashanit Penina. His first wife's name was Chana. We said it's a female form of the word Chen, which is Grace. His, her name was Grace. And the second wife's name was Penina, which means a jewel. Penina is a jewel. And it's interesting because in the shul where I came from, Highland Park, there was a girl called Penina as well, and my daughter Hannah was very attached to her. So amazing. She was just a baby, and she was very attached to Penina. She would always hold on to Penina's hand. So anyway, Hannah and Penina were two co-wives of Elkanah. Now, we have to understand the background information, which is not in the Torah, because the Torah is just a very, very brief account. And we're going to talk about how the relationship of Hannah and Penina is very similar in certain ways to the relationship between Sarah and Hagar. Sarah and Hagar, Sarah was childless. Sarah, the wife of Abraham, Abraham was childless. And it says that she gave her maid to Abraham to marry. And the rabbi said a similar case by uh, Hannah and Penina. Hannah was the original wife. She was the main wife. And she couldn't have children. She was struggling to have children. She couldn't have children. She was generous. To her husband, she said she gave permission to marry another wife, which was the way was, things were done in those days. And Elkanah marries Penina, and she has 10 children. Imagine, Penina has 10 children, and Khana has zero children. Okay, that's a bit of background information. And it says, And the man would go from his city for many years, he would go to sacrifice to Hashem Tzvakot. We're going to talk about that name. Shiloh, in a place called Shiloh, which is today a settlement in the Judea and Samaria. And uh, they found over there the remnants of this uh, great Mishkan, the tabernacle, which was built at that time. Uh, not the tabernacle which Moshe Rabbeinu Moses took around him in the desert, the Mishkan, but it was actually built with solid uh, stone walls. And the roof was the same roof of the Mishkan. So the roof was the same leather roof they used for the Mishkan, the skin coverings. And, but the walls were actually solid stone walls. So they unearthed these stone walls. And today, go and see the site of the old uh, Mishkan, this Mishkan Shiloh, which is brought down the story in the book of Samuel, which lasted approximately hundreds of years, hundreds of years. The Mishkan and Shiloh lasted hundreds of years till it was destroyed by the Philistines and the Ark of God was taken away. We have to talk about that. We'll talk about Eli, who is the high priest. We're going to talk about it a bit now today, but also we have to talk about him and how they lost the Ark of God to the Philistines who destroyed the Mishkan in Shiloh and then the Ark had to move different places, first to Beit Shemesh and eventually they got it back from the Philistines. The Philistines actually sent back the Ark and the Ark came back by itself, pulled by two oxen. Imagine, put it on a car, they put it on a car and they sent it off by itself and it came back automatically. The oxen were pulling the, the Aron Kodesh and the cart, first to Beit Shemesh and then it went, uh, went to um, Telstone today, um, which is uh, Kiryat Yarim and other places north, and uh, eventually ended up, David Amelach brings it to Yerushalayim. But anyway, so that time it was in a place called Shiloh for hundreds of years. That's where the Mishkan was set up, hundreds of years in Shiloh. And that's where Elkanah would go every year. You know, there's a mitzvah to go. In those days where there was a temple to the temple three times a year. These three times a year were the three major festivals. And that's why in Hebrew they are called regalim, which is another word for legs. They were foot festivals, which means every single Jew was expected to walk to the temple three times a year. Now the temple was in Shiloh, the Mishkan was in Shiloh. Every single Jew was expected to go to Shiloh three times a year, Pesach. Shavuot and Sukkot. 
And what happened was the pew of the judges, it says every man was for themselves and there was no central authority. And this mitzvah came into disuse. No one would go to Shiloh. Very few people would go. And Elkanah and Hanah started, rejuvenated this mitzvah. So the, the Talmud says Elkanah would hire bands and he would walk to Shiloh through different towns, camping in different towns. And they'd see people would hear the music and the bands and say, where are you going, Elkanah? Where are you going? I'm going to Shiloh. So what are you doing in Shiloh? Says, well, there's a mitzvah in the Torah to go three times a year. This is the first year, five families joined in. The second year, 10 families, 30, 50, and then he would go through different routes. So every year he would go a different route and different people would come and join until it says every single Jew started going three times a year to Shiloh. Amazing. So this is the merit of Elkanah and Hanah. They rejuvenated a single mitzvah in the Torah. They rejuvenated this mitzvah of going to Shiloh. Now again, this this is all absent from these verses in uh, Samuel. They're all oral law. So in order to understand the written law, we have to understand the oral law as well. Because without the oral law, we're lost. We just have the headings of the story. We don't have the main story. So the oral law fleshes out the story for us. What happens? So it says that who were the priests at that time? The two sons of Eli were serving as priests over there. And, and Elkanah slaughtered, his, he brought a sacrifice. Now it depends on the sacrifice, but most of the sacrifice are eaten by the owners. So they're just the fats and the blood is offered up to God and the rest of the sacrifice is eaten by the owners. Most people don't know that. That's, that's a korban shlamim, a korban todah. Most of the meat is eaten by the owners. And plus, they're given the skin um, to be given by them to whoever they want. The skin, skin was very valuable in those days. So in other words, it was like you go to the Beit HaMikdash, you bring your animal, the animal is slaughtered, the blood is thrown on the altar, and the fats are offered to God, and the rest is given back to the owner to eat with his family. So they can eat it over there. And here, Elkanah brings his offering, and he gives the first piece, he gives to Penina, Ishto, Bukholbane, and all his sons and daughters. And Hana, he would give her a double portion, which we have to talk about as well. What well, he gave her a double portion. And Hana, uh, because he loved Hana. But Hashem had closed her, her, her womb. Hashem would not allow her to have a child. And her sarata, which means her co-wife. That's interesting. The word for a co-wife in Hebrew is a sarah, which means trouble. A trouble. She was a trouble. Co-wife in this case was definitely a trouble. Penina would make a mockery of Hannah. She would tease Hannah endlessly about Hannah not having children. And we're going to talk about that. Why would Penina go to stoop to such a low level to tease Hannah endlessly? Gam so she would make her angry and she'd make her cry because she couldn't have children. This, I'm just reading the text before we explain it in detail. And this happened year after year. Whenever they went to the house of God, Hanabina would make Hana angry and make her cry and Hana would not eat. So despite getting a double portion, Hana would refuse to eat. There's a famous line what a husband, this, this man was a big tzaddik, a prophet, a righteous person, a good person. And he said to his wife, Hana, lama tifki, why are you crying? Lama why don't you eat the food? Lama why are you depressed? My love for you is greater than 10 children. Imagine. You won't get the same love from 10 children as you get from me. Now that's pretty comforting right not really because you can never substitute the love you get from a child or love you give to a child it's not the same love so love of a husband is not the same love as a child boy you're seeing pictures of my uh, children and grandchildren boy it's not you've got to compare it's different kinds of love so love of a child love of a spouse two different things completely so you have to explain what is what is Elkanah telling her you know my love for you is more than love of 10 children Imagine. So it sounds great. I mean, it's, it's a great line. 
but what does it actually mean? How, how can you comfort a woman who has no children? And, and the husband says, don't worry, I have, my love for you is greater than love for them. We have to talk about all these points. So it is very, very beautiful. But first of all, rabbis specify why was Elkanah and Hannah going to Shiloh every year? Why does the Torah have to talk about it? As we said, it's because he was rejuvenating this mitzvah. No one was going to Shiloh for the holidays, and he started the ball rolling. He started going, he started hiring bands, he started influencing people to go to what's called Aliyah Regal three times a year. So he, it was started by him. That's how the book starts off. Um, and uh, we find there's a Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says in the Midrash, it says, In Ra'ita Israel, if you see Jews who move their hands away from keeping the Torah, you stand up and you grab the Torah. Imagine, yeah, you're in the synagogue and, and, and there's no one wants to do halba. They don't lift up the Torah. So you, this is in a place where there's no men, you've got to stand up and be a man. So the Jews are leaving the Torah, so we have to, we the remnants have to hold on to the Torah even more. So that's what it says, Elkanah. That's what Mishim Barichai says. When Elkanah saw people not doing this mitzvah, he said, I have to do it and I have to be, do it even more. I have to do it with bands, music, and try and attract more people to do it. That's the mitzvah that they were doing. So it's a beautiful idea. If you see Israel, you see Jews, the hands are moved away from the Torah, you stand up and you strengthen your hands. And you get the reward of everyone. Okay, so it's interesting that's how, that was the first Kirov movement. Uh, we find this earlier. We find Devorah also educated the masses um, in Torah. But here, Elkanah is doing it in a very practical way. He's doing it by showing a leading example. He's a role model. Elkanah is a role model going through different cities of Israel every year, going to the Mishkan and drawing many followers all the time. So that is a beautiful idea. And that's the mitzvah that he was doing. Okay, so Elkanah and his wife and his children, it says, and his brothers and his sisters, all his relatives would go with him to the festival, to the, to the uh, Mishkan, to the sanctuary in Shiloh, and the whole country started coming after that. So he started the ball rolling. First he gets his, his own family, then he gets other families. And then, you know, there's a beautiful story. It says, I think, Rabbi Israel Salanta. He says, when he, he was a young man, he says, let me change the world. I will change the world. My outreach, my Musar, I will change the world. After a year or two, he says, I can't change the world. So let me try and change people in my city. When he comes back a year or two later, he says, I can't change people in my city. He says, let me try and change my own family. He tries to change his own family. Two years later, he says, I can't change my family. Let me try and change myself. <laughs> so, and the truth is, everything starts with us, everything starts with ourselves. If we can change ourselves, then we can start working on others. If we can't change ourselves. There's another story, it says, when the locomotive was invented, it's a beautiful story, one of my favorite stories. When the locomotive was invented, then the first, they laid the first track to the small Polish town where Rabbi Salanta lived. And the first train comes through the track town. All the townspeople are there to watch this new invention. And they're all watching, ah, oh, it's amazing. Look at that steam, the noise, the whistle, wow. And Rabbi Shah Salanta was going around touching the walls of the carriages of the train. And he's touching the walls and his students are following him. They're very, what's, what's this rabbi doing? This looks very strange. He's going around the whole train, touching the walls of the carriages of the train. And says, and when he came to the locomotive and he touched the walls of the locomotive, obviously they were very hot. He says, mm, now I know. I said, what do you know, Rabbi? He says, now I know. He says, one hot car can pull many cold ones. What does that mean? One person who is motivated and excited and, and enthusiasm can pull many people who are not motivated and excited and, and enthusiastic. And that really is the job of the leader. The job of the leader is to pull the other carriages, the cold carriages with enthusiasm and warmth and strength, because without that, no one's going to come. So very beautiful idea. And that was Elkanah. Elkanah was this locomotive who drew the Jewish people back to their roots, back to Shiloh, back to the central uh, Mishkan of the Jewish people where you could feel the presence of the Almighty. You could feel the presence of Hashem. 
And that's what, she, what he did. That's his mitzvah. And the whole family was partaking. All his relatives would partake. And now we come to the wives of Hana. So it says the first wife's name was Hana. We have to remember that. Shem Ha'achat Hana is she's the main wife. And where do we see that she's the main wife? Again, it's the Midrash Psikta Rabbah. Uh, says, let me just quote to you what, she, what the, Psikta, the Midrash says, she was the main wife, she was the first wife of Elkanah, when she saw that she couldn't give birth, she says to her husband, please take another wife. Through this, Hashem will see, God will see, I brought my own trouble into my own house, and Hashem will give me a baby. So her calculation was, if I'm generous to my husband, I bring another wife in, even though she's going to cause me pain and suffering. Hashem will see my pain and suffering and bless me with a child. We see this also with uh, Sarah. Sarah also thought she's going to you know, give Abraham uh, another uh, wife, and she'll have a child, and she did have a child. And we see this also with Leah. Leah, Hashem saw her suffering because she wasn't loved as much as Rachel, and Hashem gave her a child. And Hannah is using a similar kind of move to try and get a child, that she's bringing troubles into her own house. She could have had a good life with her husband, and they remained childless, but she brought troubles in her own house. She gave him another wife, and uh, she caused her own trouble, and she says, Hashem should see my persecution in my own house, that I cause myself and have mercy on me and give me a child. So she was willing to take this chance to give a child, to get a child, and unfortunately she was persecuted by this co-wife who had 10 children, 10-0, she's like a contest. She had 10, Hannah had zero, and she was being mocked every morning. We're going to see the Midrash goes in great detail. When Nina's sending her children to school, washing them, cleaning them, clothing them, she says, Hannah, how many children did you wash? today? How many children did you provide food for today? How many children did you clothe today? And obviously Hannah was crying and bitter about that terrible persecution. We have to talk about that. Why was Pedina persecuting Hannah? Hannah never had children. Hannah was the Akerat Abayt. She was the main wife that we see with Abraham and Sarah. And just like Hagar persecuted Sarah, that's why Sarah got angry and threw her out twice. So too, Hannah was persecuted by Penina, but Hannah did not throw Penina out. She couldn't. Penina was really a wife to Elkanah, and she had 10 children. And we don't find Hannah trying to even throw her out. She could have got a husband to divorce her. That was, you can see the character of Hannah, sterling character of Hannah. She was willing to absorb and not cause pain. She was willing to absorb pain from others, not cause pain to other people. She wanted her husband to have a child. She gets him another wife. She's willing to absorb the pain of the other wife just so that she can make her husband happy. Well, that's a great trait. Very hard trait. So we see that she conquered her ego. Hannah is a role model for conquering ego. Hannah is a role model for conquering ego. That's one of our role models of conquering ego. <coughs> so she was successful in conquering ego. And her prayers, which we have to talk about, which is why I'm, I'm bringing, raising this story of Hanal, her prayers, and her prayers to Hashem, that she brought in her own troubles into the house by bringing in a co-wife. And uh, her prayers show tremendous emunah, which is faith in God, in God's, what's called hashgacha pratit, which is divine providence. And there's two different kinds of providence. There's general providence, Hashem is, uh, shows divine providence over the whole world. There's also divine providence. We believe in special divine providence of every individual. God is a personal God. He cares about every single individual. And this is one of the themes in the story of Hannah. And Hashem listens to the prayers of every individual who pray with truth. It says, we say in Ashrei every day, three times a day. Hashem listens to prayers of anyone who calls out, anyone who calls out in truth. 
Again, this is one of the themes of Hannah, story of Hannah, that her prayers were eventually answered. We're going to see how. So one of the techniques was, she tells God, look at my troubles, look at my affliction. Hashem is the one who saves people who are afflicted. Hashem is on the side of the afflicted. Where do we know this? The Torah says, if you afflict a widow or an orphan or a stranger, Hashem says, if you afflict them, I will hear their cries and I will be there. I will take their, their vengeance. I will take their side. Hashem listens to the cries of the persecuted, of the hunted. And Hashem is listening to the cries of Hana. We're going to see this is divine providence on a micro scale. This is divine providence on a microcosm. So there's divine providence on a macro scale. There's divine providence on a micro scale. We, when we pray to God, we believe there's divine providence on a micro scale. We believe Hashem hears every single person's prayers. If they pray with their heart, with truth, in other words, it's not a fake prayer, it's a real prayer coming from the heart, uh, a, a, a talk to the divine, a talk to the boss, a talk to the uh, person's boss. So you want to you have a raise, you want to have anything, you talk to the boss, but first you have to praise. There's, you cannot pray to God without praises, and we're going to talk about that as well. Let's see later on what she says, how she says it. And the biggest lesson in the prayers of Hannah is if you make your prayers God's. In other words, I want this for you, Hashem. It's not just selfish. Hashem does not like selfish prayer. I want this for you. I want a child who will serve you, Hashem. Uh, we're going to see. That's really a clincher. If you want your prayers to be answered, you say, Hashem, I want this to serve you better. I want to live long to serve you. I want good health to serve you. I want the finances to be able to serve you. I want the children to serve you. She says, oh, it's for me, not for you. You're going to get it. That's it. You're going to definitely get it. If you're on my side, you can't lose. A person's on God's side, can't lose. No way to lose. Anyway, so it's interesting. We're going to come to that. So, but the first prayer she had was, Hashem, see my affliction. I'm the main wife. I brought this co-wife into the house. She causes me trouble. I don't open my mouth. I accept all the trouble. I accept all the persecution. Hashem, just answer my prayers because see how I'm persecuted. Hashem answers the prayers of the persecuted ones. So interesting. So she was the partner of Elkanah to bring the Jews back to this mitzvah of Aliyah Regal of going three times a year to Shiloh. And that's to her credit that she went along. Imagine she left the house, she goes with her husband on this long trip. She encourages him to go on the trip and she comes with him and she, she takes part in the sacrifice of living in comforts of a home, living in a tent, in a wagon for I don't know how many days of travel. And she's part of that, part of that mitzvah. Okay, so let's move on um, with the next point, which is. Four times a year, Elkanah would go to Shiloh with his family. Three times, as he said, according to the Torah, Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot, once he would go extra. He would go extra. What's the purpose? To keep the mitzvah and to go and pray to God in the holiest place at that time, which was Shiloh. There was no temple in Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim was not even the capital city of Israel yet. He was conquered by King David seven years after he reigned, which is many years later, and uh, 50 odd years later. So he's going to Shiloh an extra time, the Midrash says, to serve God, just to serve God. They have a big meal over there and they rejoice before God. That's what the Torah says on the festival. It says, You will rejoice in front of God, which means by the temple. You, your sons and your daughters. That's a, that's a Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 12. So, you'd bet, you'd bet. Okay. Okay. So, now when he gave the portions out, he gave Hannah and Penina and her children. First, he gave Penina and he gave her 10 children. Then, he gave Hannah a double portion. So, that, what's that mean with the double portion? What's the point of the double portion? It says he gave her a pain, which is an interesting word. And uh, we talk about Hashem has erech apayim, slow to anger. 
He gave her a portion of anger. What does that mean, anger? To pacify her anger. She would get very upset, very angry. Because Benita would mock her. To pacify her anger. But it's in the plural. So why? So the rabbis tell us in the Midrash, he would eat with her. He gave her a double portion for her to cook for him and her a romantic dinner to comfort her, that to show his love for her. So he would eat with her. Kanina would eat with 10 kids and he would eat with Anna because she was so heartbroken and try and comfort her. So interesting, he gave a double portion to cook for him and she would cook for him, a special dish, and they would eat together. That's how he pacified her, try to pacify her. So what would he tell her? He would, he would tell her, you are more for me than 10 children. We're going to talk about that. But Penina, what would Penina tell Chana? The Midrash says, what would Penina tell Chana? This is Yaakov Shimoni. Did you buy your oldest child a sweater? Did you buy him a shirt? Did you buy him a pair of sh- a pants? Amar of Nachman Bar Abba Haitza Penina. Didn't you get up in the morning to wash your children's faces so that they could go to school? And Rav Tanchum ben Abba says, They will sit down to eat and Elkanah would give each of his children their portion. Prina tried to anger Chana and she would say to Elkanah, give her also her children's portions. Wow, and she never had any children. So she really, really tried her best to trouble Hana on every single occasion. Amar Baruch Hashem said to Hana, you are, uh, you are complaining to me. The word for complaint in Hebrew is taromit. Taromit comes with ra'am. Ra'am literally means thunder. So uh, thunder, what's the word for thunder? It's like a complaint. Thunder is like a complaint. So Hashem says to Hannah, your complaints to me are like lightning, which will bring the rain. Your complaints, your prayers will be answered. Don't worry, Hannah. Just like the thunder brings the rain, your prayers will bring the rain, will bring, you're going to have a child. So all these persecutions that Hannah went through caused Hashem, one of the causes that Hashem answered the prayers. Interesting that persecution brings prayer and prayer brings salvation. Prayer is the key to salvation. So the rabbis say, you know what, Penina was not such an evil person, even though this Midrashim seems to paint her in such a terrible, terrible, mean person who keeps on persecuting Hannah, who brought her into the house. In the first place, she persecutes her. And the rabbis say she had a good motive. Her motive was she doesn't want Hannah to just be comfortable and complacent. She wanted Hannah to pray harder for a child. In other words, Hannah was the main wife. She brought Penina to the house. I did my duty. Elkanah now has 10 children. I don't have to worry about children. And Penina says, no, that's not good enough, Hannah. You have to pray. And the way she made her pray, she made her pray through bitterness, through being. The Midrash compares Penina to the Satan. This is wild. Penina, it says, the Midrash says, Penina and the Satan both serve God. What do you mean? Penina and Satan both serve God. Well, Satan served God by accusing Job. Satan wanted to prove that Job was not righteous compared to Abraham. So uh, Satan was doing God's work to show how great Abraham was. And Penina was doing God's work to show, to, to make Hannah pray. That's, that's a famous Midrash. But it's just not good to be compared to Satan. Can you imagine? Uh, Hannah, Penina is compared to Satan. Yeah, she made Hannah pray, but she did it in the wrong way. She did it in a terrible way. Instead of encouraging her pleasantly, she encouraged her negatively. She's mocking her by through mocking and ridicule, and eventually Prina gets punished. We're going to talk a bit about that later on. But it's a very interesting story because we see over here how the power of prayer can alter the future. And as we talked about last week, and this is one of the sources, is Hannah. Hannah couldn't have children, and her prayers opened the doors to her children. So we see just Prina was called Prina, she was a jewel. Prina was a jewel. If you remember, Prina was a jewel. She just used, she had good motives, but she used the wrong attitude and approach. And this is a very important lesson for all of us. Sometimes we have good motives, but we do the wrong thing. We're doing, we're achieving the goals in the wrong way. There's many ways of achieving a goal, 
my motive is good. I want to achieve the goal, but I can do it in a very bad way, very mean way. There's different ways of educating a child. You can do it in a very mean way. The goal is the same, right? The goal is I want to educate the kid. I'll whack him. I'll beat him. Uh -uh. That's the wrong way of approaching it. You have the right motives, but you're using the wrong technique. Well, Panina had the right motives. She used terrible technique of mocking and causing anguish, causing pain. And that's not a good path to go. So in one sense, she was a righteous woman. On the other sense, she, 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 she messed up. She messed up badly. Panina messed up badly. Now we're going to see at the end of the story, Panina has to ask forgiveness from Hannah, which she does according to the Midrash. We're going to talk a bit about that later. Panina asks uh, forgiveness from Hannah uh, because of well, what happened later on. So anyway, so what happens? It says the Midrash tells us every time eventually Hannah had a baby, she had five children. Hannah had five children. Every time she had a child, two of Panina's children would die. That was Panina's punishment. Yeah, she had 10 children. Every time Hannah had a child, two of her children would die. So eventually four, four children were born for Hannah. When the fifth child was born, Panina came to Hannah and said, no, no, don't, please, please pray to God. I, please, I beg you, forgive me. Forgive me and let my last two children survive. So it says, Hannah prayed for her and forgave her and her last two children survived. So tragic, tragic story for Panina because she, she could have asked forgiveness right at the beginning, which she should have done is never mock someone, never, even though you're, it's very hard. It's very hard not to mock. It's very easy to mock. And it's very hard not to mock. It's very hard not to mock. Some people have a tendency of mocking. In England, it's called taking the mickey, which, you know, it's like a part of English behavior. I grew up in England and I know what's about it. It's called taking the mickey, mocking someone and causing people to laugh. <laughs> and someone else's expense. It's like taken for granted in certain societies. Well, Panina used that technique in a very vicious kind of way to get Hannah, who's complacent, to get out of her complacency and pray. And unfortunately, her technique was wrong, even though the motives were right. And eventually she realized that when she lost a few of her kids, unfortunately. And she asked Hannah for forgiveness and Hannah forgave her. And therefore it says Hannah had seven children. She didn't really have seven, she had five. The two children of Panina's that she prayed for are considered hers because they didn't die. Anyway, so it's a tragic story for Panina. And it's a big lesson to all of us not to mock someone, ridicule someone, even though the motives are good. It's, and it's very hard. It's very hard to grow up in that kind of society where a lot of mocking is going on and then trying to change the habit is so hard. It's really, but it's, we have to learn that lesson. I'm not mocking, even though the even though the motives are good, not to mock and not to criticize, even though the motives are good, because it causes people anguish, not to cause other people anguish and hurts, which is very, again, a person's going to watch what they say, they make a little joke at someone else's expense, the person gets upset, and the person's going to ask forgiveness, that's a terrible thing, and a person gets upset, we must never upset people, we must never try our best never to upset other people, it's very hard. You know, being a rabbi is very hard in that respect because, you know, something you might say might cause us uh, upset, even though you have no intention at all. You have good motives, but you never know. I remember when I was <laughs> I speeches in uh, Shabbat speeches in Vancouver and straight after the speech, a young lady would come to me and say, you're speaking about me, right? You're talking about me. I know you're talking about me. So well, I'm not talking about you at all. I'm talking in very general. <laughs> some people have, I don't know, guilty consciences. I don't know what they have. They have some kind of problems and uh, they think you're talking about them specifically. So you have to apologize, say, no, I'm not talking about you. I'm not talking about you. Please forgive me. Don't want to cause anyone anguish. This is a general situation I'm talking about. Okay, so it's very interesting and something which we have to watch in our own lives and message over here. And Hannah prayed to God. And she prayed for the two children of Nina and survived Baruch Hashem. So now let's go back to Elkanah and Hannah. What kind of relationship did Elkanah and Hannah have? So it says that he loved them. He loved them more than ten children. Why are you crying? Why are you not eating? Why are you so depressed? I am better for you than ten children. Sounds so nice, sounds so good. It really is good. So the rabbis fight over here, hidden Musa. 
Elkanah knew how to speak to Hannah. She was a prophetess. He was a prophet. They were very high spiritual levels. The Mishnah, the, the Midrash points out something amazing in the sentence. Ani tovlach Ani, the Midrash says, substitute Ani Anochi Hashem Ani is referring to Anochi Hashem He tells Hannah, don't forget, there's a God in heaven. And God loves you more than 10 children. What does that mean? God loves you more than anything. So it's interesting. He didn't give her Musar directly. He gave her, he gave her hints. And she was smart enough to understand what that hint meant. He gave her hints. He said the word Ani. And she says, Ani. Who says Ani? Anochi Hashem Elokecha. God. There's a God in heaven. If there's a God in heaven, I believe in God. I'll just turn to God. All this depressing statements I'm getting from Hannah, all this, from Panina, all this vicious treatment from Panina. I don't have to worry about anything. God is, there's a God in heaven. I'm going to go straight to the boss. I'm going to turn to God and pray. So two things caused Hannah to pray. Besides the fact that she never had children, she was heartbroken at the treatment she was getting from Panina and the encouragement she got from her husband who says, Ani, I love you more than 10 children. My love for you is more than 10 children. She puts the, Ani wakes her up and says, Ah, Ani, where did I hear Ani? Anuchi Hashem Rakecha. God says, I am the Lord your God. Oh, I am the Lord your God. I just turn to God and listen to him. He listen to my prayers. And that's what she did. That same day, she goes back to the temple and she goes and she's praying with tears. She's praying with all of her heart and the, the, the high priest that time, Eli, the rabbi said, well, he was just, he just became high priest. He was a brand new high priest. Can you imagine? He was high priest for 40 years. He was a high priest. It's the first day he's officiating as high priest. He sees this woman crying, her lips are moving. He can't hear a single sound. And he says the famous words. He says, are you drunk? Oh, boy. Can you imagine? You can see he's a young man. You can see he's not, uh, he has no experience. It's the last thing you say to a woman who is suffering and pain and crying to God. Are you drunk? Boy, 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 boy. That is really an insult. That is a terrible insult. But you know what? She doesn't get insulted. She says straight out, I'm not drunk. I'm a heartbroken woman. That's a beautiful, you know. She didn't take insult. Someone else would have taken insult. What? You call me drunk. I'm, I'm, I'm praying to God. You call me drunk. So I say, you know, why did he think that she was drunk? Because most people, when they pray, they pray aloud. That was a very interesting, very interesting Arizal. Arizal was one of the top Kabbalists in our generation, about 400 years, 500 years ago. He's still today the top Kabbalist in our generation. And Arizal would never pray loudly. Since when he prayed, he prayed quietly. Wow. Why would he pray quietly? He says a person who prays loudly has, seems to lack emunah, seems to lack faith. Why? Because they're praying loudly. They think God cannot hear them. Very fascinating. He would pray. Rechaim Vital, his student says, my master would pray quietly. The exception would be on Shabbat. With the songs of praise, the Pesuket, the Zimra, he would say a bit louder just to praise God. But otherwise, he would pray quietly to himself because a person who believes in God believes that God answers them, can hear them without shouting, God is here, God is with us, God knows what's going on, God is well aware of what's going on. We have to bring prayers into the physical realm, hence we have to move our lips and uh, we have to hear what we're saying, but we don't scream, we don't trouble other people we don't raise our voices when a person prays this prayer as silently as possible of course unless they're all alone and they find raising their voice helps their kavana sometimes raising one point one's voice helps one's uh kavana which is one's uh, concentration but that's only when you're praying by yourself when you're praying with a minyan with other people you shouldn't pray very loudly it does trouble other people but also it shows a lack of faith and god cannot hear me i have to raise my voice so it's very important. So he saw Ellie sees this revolution. This girl, this woman is praying. She's crying. But she's not moving. She can't hear what she's saying. She's moving her lips. I can't hear. I mean, she's drunk. 
And she says, no, I'm not drunk. This is the way I pray. This is the way to pray, Eli, your new high priest. <laughs> she's educating the high priest, a new high priest. And she's teaching him how to pray. And she's teaching all of us how to pray. You pray by moving your lips and nothing should be heard by others. Marizal says, when you pray Amida, you don't even hear yourself. Shukhanah says, you do hear yourself, but no one else is allowed to hear what you're praying for. Our private prayers are private. That's what they are. Private prayers are private. We learn from the story. Private prayers are private. So we have a lot of different things we learn from the story. So anyway, she goes and prays. And straight away, her prayers are answered. But you know what she says? She said, God, give me a child. Now, it's interesting because she makes a vow. She makes a vow when she prays. People don't know this. So the first vow she says, Hashem Tzvakot, God of the hosts, which is interesting, God of the hosts. If you see the troubles of your maid, Sakhatani, and you will remember me, and you will not forget me. You give me a, a, a male child. I'll give him to you, Hashem, all the days of your life. I'll raise him as a holy child, and he'll serve you in the Mishkan, in the sanctuary. He will serve you because Levites, one of the jobs of Levites was to serve God in the sanctuary. He had three functions in the sanctuary. So it depends on what their tendencies were. If they're musically inclined, they were the musicians in the sanctuary. The Levites would sing in the sanctuary. Something we don't have today, which is ceremonial song with music. Still, since the temple was destroyed, there's no more music. Unfortunately, in the, our synagogue service, they removed all the musical instruments. In Orthodox services, no more musical instruments since the time of destruction of the temple. Prior to that, in the temple, the Levites would be the musicians and the singers. And it was beautiful, came out of singing psalms with music. We don't have, we have, today we have the songs, we have the words, we don't have the music. The music was so uplifting, so spiritual, that it was terrific. You go into the temple, hear this music, and you're attached, you're drawn to Hashem, you're drawn to Hashem. So what her son is going to be either a musician in the temple, or he'll be a guard. The Levite was a strong man, they put him as a guard. Or they put him as someone, someone who does all the janitorial jobs in the temple. So three functions for Levites in the temple. And Hanas promises to Hashem, you give me a child, I'll send him as a side. I'll send him to the temple to work in the temple. That's the first neder she made. And the second neder, the second round she makes is, and he will be a nazir. I'll make him a nazir. He won't have any haircuts. His hair, just like Samson, which we have to talk about uh, maybe next week. Samson is one of the weirdest stories in the Torah in Tanakh. And so next week, Bezrat Hashem Samson, I want to thank you all for attending today. And Bezrat Hashem will get some of these techniques of Hana, how to answer our prayers. Number one, affliction, very powerful for prayers. And number two is to pray quietly. Number three is pray with all your heart, pray with truth. Number four is not just to pray for yourself, but pray for God. Make She wants a son to serve God. And God says, you're on my team, I'm on your team. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.